Good evening and welcome to Ideas on History and the New Age. I'm Lister Sinclair. If you are aware of what is happening in history, of the purpose of God or the purpose of history, you can help it to become realized in the world. You can also do something else. You can try to humanize it. And certainly the power of evil is now handed over into our hands, you see, with the atomic bomb. We are godlike now. We can do what God does, namely create and destroy life. And there, as human beings, we can try to modify the thing and say, well, wait a minute. Yes, we can create evil, but we don't want to. We don't want to destroy the earth. Because left by itself, it might destroy it. There is no nothing to prevent us from destroying the world now. Nothing. Tonight's program, the third in this series, is called History and the Unconscious and is written and presented by David Cayley. History is a nightmare from which I am trying to awaken. These words were written by James Joyce, and his sentiment has often been shared by individuals and nations caught in the grips of historical forces seemingly beyond their control. Today, the whole world looks on with horror at the continuing preparations for nuclear war and shares the experience of sleepwalking towards a man-made apocalypse. History is the realm of the unconscious, the arena in which nations do what individuals would never contemplate. And yet history must ultimately have its source in us, not in our individual minds, but in the collective mind for which we have not yet learned to take responsibility. This program is an exploration of that collective mind. I begin with Sigmund Freud, who was the first thinker of our own era to try and understand history in psychological terms. His ideas are summarized by Robert J. Lifton, a professor of psychiatry at Yale and himself the author of a number of books which apply psychoanalytic concepts to historical study. Freud had a couple of models, as I see it, for a psychological approach to history. And one was perhaps his most important model was the totem and taboo model. And that was really a fascinating view of how the generations succeeded each other and how they supplanted each other and how that supplanting of one generation by another was necessary for the flow of history. But in reverting back to prehistory, as was his habit, he seized upon the concept of the primal horde uh, in that prehistorical mythical era, the sons in the primal horde rebelling against the father, overcoming him, killing him, and eating him in the manner of the time, a kind of cannibalistic uh, period of history, a prehistory. And by that rebellion, he could trace as at least a symbolic concept uh, social change, historical change, the flow of history. It was a fascinating idea and still I think one that has psychological importance for us. The difficulty is that it isn't really studying history, it's using a prehistorical pattern as he imagines it with some force as a way of explaining historical process. His other mode, or his other model, or 
paradigm uh, was that of individual psychopathology. You study the psychological life of the great person in history, a leader, perhaps the most famous example is the Woodrow Wilson uh, psychobiography, which he did with Bullitt and which, as I've written, uh, defenders of Freud would like to see attributed totally to Bullitt because it's a book, to say the least, not without its flaws. But actually it's based on a Freudian model of individual psychopathology as the explanatory force for history. So you learn about the post-World War I pattern in European history and American history around or in connection with Woodrow Wilson's struggle with maleness or difficulties about feeling his own self-assertion as a male. Well, leaving aside the details, the model here is the psychological conflict within an individual leader as a source of explanation of historical direction. Again, it has some value, but it tends to reduce history to psychopathology. And we have then with Freud a kind of wonderful paradox that I find in confronting most of his work. You can't do without it, but you make a big mistake by taking it literally as your total explanation. If you take Freud's approach to history literally, you eliminate history for prehistory in the name of studying history. Uh, or else you eliminate history for psychopathology in the name of studying history. Of the two models described here by Robert Lifton, it has been mainly the second which has been influential. The idea of history as individual psychopathology writ large has been picked up by a number of schools of what has come to be called psychohistory. This has produced several fruitful approaches, outstanding amongst them Eric Erickson's studies of Luther and Gandhi. But ultimately, for me, this idea too has distinct limitations because it cannot explain the collective dimension of historical experience. People and cultures seem to be moved by historically conditioned symbols which originate at a deeper level of the psyche. Carl Jung called it the collective unconscious. Ira Progoff is a depth psychologist who has written a number of works on Jung's psychology. Not only do human beings live in history, but also in some way history is inside the human being. That's what Jung understood that interested me in him. This sense, for example, when he was trying to understand what made the Nazis go crazy the way they did. His understanding was this way, that in, in the Germanic countries, in the second millennium of the Christian era, that, that those peoples who were then sort of semi-tribal uh, communities, they had a Teutonic religion with a certain kind of gods, the Wotan gods, and Siegfried and those uh, figures, and that that was the religious framework of that culture. When Christianity came in, Jung would say, see, when Christianity came in, it was really forced onto the Germanic people who weren't quite ready for it. They didn't really accept it because they accepted it, but because the princes who were politically organizing that part of the world, they made they became Christians in that 
really more political than a religious sense. So his idea is that the Europeans in that part of Europe, Northern Europe, were Christians on the surface and deeper down in their depth, they were still Teutonic in their religion. And that one was very uh, unevenly set upon the other. Therefore, when the society got into difficulty, specifically when Germany lost World War I and had its great difficulties in, those tw in the 1920s, that the layer of historical time that was deeper down in the German psyche, it erupted and pushed itself up in a kind of psychosis. And that's how he would say that history is present in the human beings and led to a kind of frenzy, a kind of psychosis in the German countries. Now, you see, that's that double sense of time, of history. Man lives in history, in time, and time of history is embedded in the structure of human beings so that when the outer world is shaken, things that are down in that historical depth start to come up. The idea of the collective unconscious is Jung's way of explaining the power and persistence of historical symbols. When a people, like the Germans, identifies with its mythic representation of itself, it is not even aware that it has a myth. We notice these symbols, whatever they may be for a particular culture, only when they no longer hold us completely in their thrall. Jung's contemporary, Otto Rank, once observed that only when religion lost the cosmos could psychology be invented. He meant that so long as we consider ourselves a natural part of a cosmic order, we treat the psyche, or the soul, as an objective rather than subjective reality. Indeed, Jung, in his later years, preferred to dispense with the term collective unconscious in favor of the term objective psyche. Walter O'Dynick is a Jungian analyst in New York and the author of Jung and Politics. With Rank and Jung, he believes that only when the French philosopher René Descartes identified consciousness as an isolated subjective awareness did the idea of an unconscious become meaningful? You see, the, the reason why there was no talk of the unconscious before Descartes, it's not because people didn't have an unconscious. They uh, were not psychologically uh, interested or attuned to the, to the problem because much of the problem was settled by religion. And as I say, God was the unconscious, and much of their unconscious was projected out into the world and seen in the myths and the mythology of the culture, in the religious life uh, of the community. The unconscious was out there. What happened was when the faith in God died, I mean, with the death of God, that's where we have the beginning of psychology, you see. That's why Nietzsche, who should have been a philosopher, became a psychologist, because once you have the death of God, you can't philosophize in the old way. You have to get psychological. All philosophy worth its salt nowadays has to take into account psychology and then the unconscious. Only when subject and object, self and society, are very clearly delineated does the idea of an unconscious become a necessary hypothesis. Walter O'Dynick goes on to suggest that this was a development that was somehow intended by the psyche. He means, I think, 
that this clearer definition of the individual ego was the result of an evolutionary process operating at a collective level. As long as people live a mythological life that is projected out into the community, the sharp distinction between what is conscious and un uh, what is unconscious doesn't exist, nor does the sharp distinction between what is individual and what is collective. And you see, what the psyche seems to have wanted to do was to make a sharp delineation between what is conscious and what is unconscious and what is individual and what is collective. Incidentally, they are both the same things. Now, see, we have an interesting development uh, as a result of that. We've gotten secular collectivism as a, a substitute for the r religious and mythological collective life at one time. But even the secular collectivism, namely socialism or communism uh, or some, some form of uh, capitalism that has its own collective uh, notions, uh, even they are ruled by certain mythological motifs, but they're just given different names. Communism is ruled by the, uh, by the uh, desire for the kingdom of God or paradise, you see, a return to paradise if you take communism as an attempt to recapture the primitive in man, or the establishment of the kingdom of God if you take communism as the building of a new uh, higher form of uh, social and human life. And it's also motivated by the archetype of the new man, you see, that man that is reborn after having gone through Armageddon or the fire of uh, revolution. The new man, the new proletarian man, is a completely different human being than the being of the past. Now, those are all religious ideas. The power of these ideas identifies them as archetypes, a word that Carl Jung used to describe the basic organizing principles which shape both physical and psychological reality. For Jung, archetypes are the psychological equivalent of instincts. They are a product of human evolution, but they also embody the possibility of a further development. And it is in this sense that Walter O'Deinick speaks of a new archetype of human wholeness which is striving for social expression in our own time. We're now going through some kind of a transformation of that dominant Western archetype into the archetype of the whole man. Now that's a different notion than utopia, because that includes evil. That includes our physical nature. You see, the, what happened with Christianity and Marxism, they're opposites. But the reason why they're opposites is because Christianity was too spiritual and Marxism had to come in to bring in the material and the, and the atheistic and the crude side of life, which Christianity tried to ignore and said, well, that's not important. You see, our life is just spiritual. The earth is a veil of tears. The point is to get out of here. But see, there is another side to life that is not that, and the communists picked up that side. See? And they, are, they complete the Christian message. That's why they're enemies. They too are, are, are opposites and also complementary in our culture. And, but see, as we go further, those two have now somehow have got to combine. And that is a new archetype that is going to be formed. And the, it's going to have a, a greater sense of wholeness about it than the ones that have been f that have ruled us to this day and include the sense that man is evil the sense that man is physical and biological and primitive and not just spiritual and good and benevolent and kind 
That's a fundamental transformation in our culture. Can we form an archetype ourselves? Can we, by being desirous of a more complete image, can, can we create an archetype? Like the Marxists say, and I think like the Christians would say, you see, you can help God. You don't make God, but you can help him or it realize itself, you see. If you are aware of what is happening in history, of the purpose of God or the purpose of history, you can help it come along. You can serve its, it uh, and uh, help it to become realized in the world. You can also do something else. You can try to humanize it, you see, because the damn thing with archetypes is that uh, they're not quite human. They're, they're superhuman, transhuman forces that that move humanity. Well, you can see it with people when people go to war. You see, it's not human at all, but something moves them. So the the thing that we should do is to try to look at what is trying to happen, and certainly the power of evil is now handed over into our hands. You see, with the atomic bomb, we are godlike now. We can do what God does, namely create and destroy life. So there we bear a responsibility to humanize the archetype that is trying to be realized so that it doesn't come in like it came into Nazi Germany and just uh, does its thing over the backs and the lives of, of, the, of the people involved. There's a danger every time an archetype is, is activated as strongly as it is and we, we sense the danger you see of our time that the handing over to us the instrument of evil, we can destroy ourselves with it. Now that is an archetypal situation. And there, as human beings, we can try to modify the thing and say, well, wait a minute. Yes, we can create evil, but we don't want to. We don't want to destroy the earth. There we can humanize the thing. Because left by itself, it might destroy it. There is no nothing to prevent us from destroying the world now. Nothing. Many of the ideas which first found expression in Carl Jung's work have subsequently been confirmed clarified and further developed in the work of contemporary transpersonal psychologists. The term transpersonal is used here to identify those who recognize that there is a dimension of the psyche which transcends the limits of our personal existence. Jean Houston, along with her husband Robert Masters, directs the Foundation for Mind Research in Pomona, New York. Over the last 20 years, she has observed literally thousands of subjects in an attempt to build a model of human psychological functioning. As we are, compared to the way we think we are, it's as if we live in the attic of ourselves with the first, second, and third, and fourth floor relatively uninhabited in the basement locked, except when we have to call in the shrink when the sewer explodes or whatever, or some kind of counselor. Um, I believe that we probably enter into this life with far more complexity than we are aware of. 
we look at the brain. I mean, we are, as Paul McLean and others suggest, we're not just one brain beings. We're at least three and possibly four brains. We have our old reptilian brain with the knowledge, the survival power, the driving force of, of, of millions of years. And we know that we have this brain. We have also the limbic system, the midbrain, which is the, the animal evolution and the tree-topping monkeys and the, uh, you know, the lumbering herds of beasts. We have our neocortex, which is essentially the early human and late human brain. And we have frontal lobes, which we might call our visionary creative, if you will, our angelic brain. Um, now, that's just on our neurological structure. We contain knowledge, survival knowledge, uh, socialization knowledge, emotional knowledge, uh, conceptualization knowledge, and capacities of, the, of course, in the right and left hemisphere, which is also gives immense complexity. Uh, we have this brain as a that 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 is a very ancient brain and is stored, we know, with an enormous antiquity of 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 gnosis of knowledge. But if you believe, as many leading neurophysiologists do, like Sir John Eccles or um, Wilder Penfield, a great Canadian neurophysiologist, or uh, certainly Carl Prebrom lately, and many others, that it might be that what we call the field of mind of the field of mind may be separate from brain, that may use brain as a kind of protein-based biocomputer, I mean, way beyond any computer that we can think of, then we may not only just have three or four brains, we may also have a quantum field of resonance, a mind field. And that mind field may be the repository of what we call uh, historical psychic content. So you see, you have a historically developed brain that has the hooks and eyes to catch much more subtle forms of information, some of it being perhaps mythic, ritualistic, loaded in story or loaded in a kind of um, a deep, deep spiritual sensibility that has access to larger stores of information. The idea of a field of mind finds confirmation in a recent book by the British biologist Rupert Sheldrake called a new science of life. Sheldrake argues that the structure of biological systems cannot be explained by their material properties alone. He therefore proposes the theory of what he calls morphogenetic fields, which link life forms across time and space. Gene Houston explains further. Certainly, if you look at the ecology of the Earth, the way there is so much exchange of systems and information, there is no reason why you cannot have an exchange of information without, having, without there being a physical base, because we are much more than a physical base. We're also, um, you know, we're electromagnetic bases. We are also probably quantum resonance bases, and I think that explains a lot of the reason that you might have two people across the continent having the same idea at the same time and having the whole complexity of that. In Rupert Sheldrake, of course, he uses the famous example of the hundredth monkey, which already, I, mean, I must tell you, scientifically is, uh, is very suspect, but let's use it as a metaphor. Supposedly, in 1958, uh, off the coast of Japan, some Japanese islands, ethologists, ethnologists were studying groups of monkeys that lived on different islands, and at one point, uh, one of them taught a lady monkey, naturally, to wash one of her potatoes. They, they, the monkeys dug potatoes or yams, and she washed it, and then she taught this to her mm -hmm. son or cousin, and he taught it to somebody else, and at a certain point, let's say when the hundredth monkey on the island, it wasn't a hundred, but let's say at a certain critical mass, then many miles away on another island, another monkey was seen taking a, right. <laughs> taking a, a yam down and washing it. Before you know it, all those monkeys were washing, and then another island this happened. And um, 
There are many examples of this, as for example, when a new kind of crystal is formed in a laboratory, then suddenly this crystal becomes much easier to form in laboratories all over the world. And saying that there is another place of exchange of information, is this the M, what he calls the M field, morphogenetic, meaning the genesis of forms? Is it a field that gives both pattern, direction, and continuity? two things, and that it is a, rather a field rather than a thing. It isn't A, billiard ball hitting B. It's A going and B, which might be a thousand miles away, picking up on and C somewhere else going and that's very basically the explanation of morphogenetic fields. Right. But it isn't anything that scientifically we can pin down. Rupert Sheldrake's attempt to formulate a biological field theory bears a marked resemblance to Carl Jung's theory of the archetypes. Indeed, Sheldrake suggests that his theory may provide the solution to the vexing problem of how the archetypes are biologically reproduced. In a late work called Synchronicity, Jung extended his archetype theory by suggesting that events are not exclusively related to each other by cause and effect. They may also be connected by some larger pattern that embraces all that is happening in a given moment. Ira Progoff, in a book called Jung, Synchronicity, and Human Destiny, has drawn out the implications of Jung's theory. Creativity, creative events, are an expression of synchronicity. Suddenly, something is clicked, and something changes, and suddenly I see things come together in a way that they weren't coming together before. Now, and then I make a synthesis. It comes to me. It's not that I make a synthesis. It's that a synthesis makes itself. And I take it that when two or more of these inner processes come together in a way that just clicks, that's a kind of interior synchronicity. And I have the sense that if in the modern, in the next period, more people uh, are able to work in this inner dimension, and my whole development in the last decade or two has been to try to make it so that people would feel they have a tangible way of working with the intangible things in our lives, this whole subjective world, that we should have a way of working with it in, in, a, in a factual, non-judgmental way, regardless of doctrines. And that if people work, can work in this way, synchronicity will become a perception that just becomes more and more uh, natural to us. We'll just know that you go on doing your thing and things will come together. That's sort of the essence of it, and that they will come together uh, by themselves. That's the other part of, of synchronicity because modern persons feel they have to be able to control things. Well, the essence of synchronicity is that things happen by themselves, that means without my controlling them. And uh, we in the modern world are accustomed to feel if we don't control things, it may be a little dangerous. I have to have my life in control. Well, it's one thing to have your life in control. It's another thing to be open for new things to happen. And in that sense, synchronicity is not just a theory for interpreting physical events as Jung was emphasizing, but it's an attitude toward the unfolding of life experience. You remember, um, I closed the book by telling the experience of Abraham Lincoln. You remember where he, uh, some man needed money, 
and gave him a, asked him for, to give him a dollar for a barrel of odds and ends that looked like it was simply junk. And Lincoln gave him a dollar and took the barrel and just did it to be a good fellow, as he would. And then, and at that time, he was uh, without an education and didn't know what he would do with his life out there in the wilderness in the West. And one day, he opened that barrel and found that it was a practically complete set of Blackstone's uh, commentaries on the law. And when he read that, and in those days in America, reading that and getting a little practical experience made you a lawyer. And so it turned out that Lincoln's just being a good fellow and giving a man a dollar when he needed it was the way that Lincoln eventually became a lawyer and then a congressman and then a president and had his whole uh, role in history, which was, uh, seemed to me, an example of synchronicity, of events coming together in a very unexpected way. But you'd really, wouldn't you have to say that underlying the synchronicity was a certain quality of being, a quality of person in Lincoln, an openness to events that made it possible for him to do something that had no meaning except it was unfolding out of his nature just to give somebody a helping hand, a helping dollar bill. It was that quality of, uh, of being in Lincoln that made it possible for a synchronistic event to happen in his life. Concepts like synchronicity, mind fields, and morphogenetic fields all suggest the limitations of the dualism which has until recently dominated Western science. So long as the world was divided into mind and mechanism, human intelligence was seen as an isolated phenomenon in a universe otherwise governed by mechanistic principles. But throughout the 20th century, this worldview has undergone a progressive collapse under the weight of new evidence suggesting the inadequacy of this simple mind-matter dichotomy. We can now begin to see that mind in its depths participates in both nature and history. Gene Houston has been one of those whose work has suggested the need for a more integrated view of the mind. Here she describes the fourfold model of the psyche, which is the fruit of her extensive research. We speculate that there are four major structures in terms of human psyche. The first being the sensory level, sensory and physiological. And uh, let's say if you were to close your eyes and look at images on this level, you would see uh, random aesthetic images. You would see your mother-in-law or the bill collector or the tiles on the bathroom floor. And it, it, respond, it, it has to do with, it's, it's much more accurate images or landscapes or faces, images that you would see you know, normally outside of yourselves and also a lot of physiological kind of phenomena. But as you observe deeper your own images, then the images would deepen into a psychological and reflective level. And you'd start to deal with things that have to do with your own problems, your own concerns, and stories. Stories would unfold. If, uh, you know, stories, the brain and psyche are naturally storied. If, if novels did not exist, the brain would have to invent them, with beginning, middle, and end. So that these random images of the first level 
would then become much more psychological, historical, existential, and storied. You'd, you'd put down an idea, you'd say, I'd like to think about such and such, and uh, let's say green peppers. And, and before you know it, your mind would be full of green peppers and probably stories about green peppers. You might find yourself cutting a, a wedge on a green pepper and walking inside, seeing the great cathedral of stained glass green windows and, you know, hearing an horizon and uh, in there the, the, the priest might come down and then take you into one of the seeded worlds and there you might find yourself face to face with Parsifal and the Grail and the Grail would become a green pepper. I mean, this is what <laughs> your, your brain will do, you know, on this sec secondary, this second psychological level. The third level is deeper and it is mythic and symbolic. As I suggested earlier, we are beneath the surface crust of consciousness. We are teeming cornucopias of myth, of ritual, of legend. This is a level of, um, of archetypes, of great, potent um, images of possibilities. It is the realm of creativity, this realm of myth. It is the great realm of great symbolic legends. There you would find, as I say, death and resurrection, talking horses, um, rites of transition, great stories of whatever, Oedipus and Faust and Merlin and Jesus Christ and Krishna and Buddha and um, uh, the child abandoned by the parents uh, to make their way in a complex universe and saving the world and all of these great stories that we are, that seem to be there seething, go ongoing in the depths of our being. What is interesting about this mythic level is, as compared to the second psychological level, on the psychological level you deal with your own personal particular, the particulars of your personal existence. At this level, on the mythic level, you deal with the personal universal because it is as if you would have turned on the subtle capacities of what should we say, a geopsychic realm, of a psychospiritual realm. This would, we would turn on latencies of brain, of mind, of sensibility that you normally do not allow yourself in your normal sensory or psychological life, you see. So this is a way of activating a great deal of evolutionary content in your own psyche. So that you would find, let's say, problems that may have disturbed you on the psychological level would be able to be met on a much larger level at this mythic symbolic level. And then there, there would be a good chance you would descend to a fourth level. Often there's no imagery there. Often it is light. Often it's a sense of gaining access to a kind of planetary or cosmic knowing. The emotional state, of course, is one of both uh, a kind of thrilling serenity, I suppose you would describe it, a kind of ecstatic knowing, or even a sense of no boundaries that you would be in a state of union. You'd be both the one and the many. And yet it would be, you would be you and you would be not you. The local self would disappear. At that point, uh, you would find yourself being carried on the momentous force of what we call an entelechy. Entelechy is a dynamic purposiveness. It is the entelechy of an acorn to be an oak tree. It is the entelechy of a baby to be a grown-up human being. And this entelechy would then swell you back upwards to the mythic, you know, reviving the great mythic patterns of the great stories of possibility, then up further to activating your psychological life, perhaps healing the psychological life, and then the sensory level, making your images and your, your external sense of senses as much keener, much fuller, and things full of luminosity. Now, what this would suggest to me, because I've seen this, of course, many hundreds of times, it would suggest that we are, have levels and levels and levels and levels within ourselves and that we often do not tap these levels. Sometimes we tap them spontaneously in dreams or in altered states. 
But we don't tend to spontaneously tap them because we get engaged in either the first two levels, the sensory or the psychological, and we get inhibited on those levels, and we do not believe the other levels exist. Or we allow the levels to be given to us gratuitously in symbolic form outside of ourselves in church or school or civic institution. But my research suggests that we have, that we have full access to a largesse of being, but that often we need a certain kind of shaking up to awake. The shaking up may occur through tragedy. It may occur through death. It may occur through the loss of a love. It may occur through a sense of the dark night of the soul where we essentially blow out, we break down, and then we break through. But it doesn't, but it doesn't have to happen that way. It could be a vehicle of grace. And so what we do in a non-drug way is to try to teach people how to speak to their brains more directly, how to use more of the brain, use more of the mind, use more of the psyche so that then when they gain access to these great creative patterns of becoming, they can bring them into the world and live on a different dimension of themselves. There is no question that as we are compared to the way we really can be, most of us live as half-asleep robots. I think Gurdjieff was, was, was quite correct in that, you know, that we are living in a dream. Uh, most people wake up at least once in their lives, then they go back to sleep again. Well, my concern is that we're not going to survive until we begin to break, wake up, not totally, but more and more so that we can begin to orchestrate life so it does not pass into a dream of apocalypse. Gene Houston suggests here that access to the great vitalizing forces of the unconscious is essential to our very survival. But she also implies that we must meet these forces wide awake in a conscious and responsible way. Very often, we fulfill our hunger for a life lived mythically and in depth by becoming slaves to forces whose existence we are unwilling to consciously recognize. Through war and other violent and destructive patterns of group behavior, we achieve a kind of transcendence on the sly, which we can now no longer afford. Richard Moss is a medical doctor and the author of The Eye That Is We. You can behave in a way that's destructive to you. And in the earlier part of life, it's not sufficiently destructive. Okay? It's, only, it's only when a behavior pattern becomes sufficiently destructive, and frequently it's not because the behavior pattern gets any worse, but because other aspects of us become more sensitive to it to what it does. In that very sense, what we're looking at today is that war was always destructive, right? But it was never sufficiently destructive to keep us from doing it. And it was also tremendously creative. War was the time when the greatest numbers of people had transcendent experiences, in the sense where transcendent experience was to go way beyond the boundary. The average man listening to this radio show, or woman, is capable of an effort on a scale of one to ten, let's say, of a four. If they're a marathon runner, they know exactly what I mean about a nine effort. But in World War II, huge, huge collective masses operated together at a seven and an eight with individuals functioning at nines and even tens. And as a result, there was transcendent experience. Also, the harnessing of the atom in the fastest time, bringing together tremendous egos in, you know, who couldn't work together under ordinary circumstances to concur and develop what was developed so rapidly. But because of the intense energies of war, what we could build did not have a compensating wisdom in it. Einstein said, yep, we've changed the whole course of the world, but we haven't changed the consciousness doing it, consciousness orchestrating what we're doing. So we have, we've placed within us 
an addiction to creating more energy through the conflict mode, the crisis mode of consciousness, of which war is the spiritual form of crisis mode evolution. Okay? And now we're coming to another kind of form, love-centered, the I that is we, the you that's in me and the me that's in you-centered evolution. Now, it's not new today. It's been stated and injected into the collective psyche for thousands and thousands of years. But it was never destructive enough before, you see, to stop war. You know, war was destructive, but it was also creative. It added energy. It enlivened. Today, we have a new mode that will create even more energy. I can state categorically that the amount of energy that a professional soccer or football team can generate in itself by opposing another equally you know, well-trained group and the amount of energy that that can generate in an audience is minimal compared to what can be generated through techniques that are nowhere near as combative but have to do with merging communion and love. In other words, the energy states... I've had people in conferences, I had one who was a U.S. Olympic skier who said, you know, never since I was competing in the Olympics have I felt so much energy going through my body. And I've always been in a, in a minor level depression because I've never been able to, to touch the, quote, spiritual, quote, aliveness that I felt when I competed. And here I am sitting in a group of people, and I've not stood at the edge of a, you know, I'm not competing, I have no opponent, and I have more energy moving through me now than ever before. So what I'm saying now is that we are now reaching the point where we don't require crisis, conflict modes for the evolutionary process. Love is choosing us because communion between individuals generates more energy to transcend the boundaries of egoic consciousness into new consciousness than does crisis create energy for the same purpose. Unconscious wears many historical disguises. We hear its exploits chronicled in the daily nightmare which we call the news. We meet it in the inexorable chains of events which sweep us along to destinies no individual ever admits to having chosen. If we are ever to control these seemingly independent forces of history, we will need first of all to recognize our vast compound being for what it is. And then we will need a method of working creatively and responsibly with unconscious factors in our individual and collective lives. Depth psychologist Ira Progoff believes that the analytical tradition in psychology has produced the idea of working in a tangible way with unconscious factors, but has not produced a viable method for doing so. Really, for me, the, the question is, what is a way of working with human beings that nurtures the interior process. So if a person is confused in his life or her life, they have a way of relating themselves to the movement of their life and to the possible opening of its future, whatever. I mean, an oak tree, I like the, you know, the old metaphor of the acorn and the oak. Well, when an acorn gets started, there's nothing to guarantee that it will become an oak. 
And if, for lots of plants, the first stages are very insecure little sprouts that are easily trampled. So there must be a time of nurturing of small things in one's life when one doesn't even know where they're going. I like to tell a story on myself. You know, when I uh, was born in the city and when I first got to buy a house, uh, there were a lot of plants out there. One of the things as a householder was that I should uh, pull out the weeds, right? Well, one time in maybe June or July, I guess in July, I got to be a good householder and I cleared out a lot of weeds, but it turned out that the weeds that I did not clear out became chrysanthemums when September came, see? And I like to tell that, you see, it's just because of my sense that you can't really tell. When you look at a human being, you don't know if a poet is there. You may say, oh, he's got this or that repression. Yes, he's got a fixation on this or that. Probably true. But there may also be, in, my, in this language, a dynotype of a poet waiting for its right time. And I do have the sense that an analytical approach, whether it's Freudian or Jungian, may pull a person off the path of their development. See, and I, in the modern age, that's probably happened, that people who could be creative persons, not only in the arts, have been pulled off into analyzing and diagnosing themselves because of this or that. And therefore, they have aborted the holistic process in the world. Ira Progoff implies that what he calls the holistic process in the world transcends both our will and our understanding. We can align ourselves with it only by saying, in the words of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. This suggests to me that beyond a certain point, the very idea of an unconscious mind loses its value for us. If our minds ultimately merge into some sort of meaningful world process, whether or not we call it God, then I think we have to recognize that what we have called the unconscious is not really unconscious at all. It seems so only from the isolated standpoint of the individual ego. Once we enlarge our perspective, and reach the level where we can feel our unity with the world and other beings, then we can see that it is in fact this isolated viewpoint which is unconscious. Dr. Richard Moss. Until we begin to work with the energy of consciousness, until the analytic schools, the psychoanalytic schools begin to see that there is a transcendent other which is fundamentally spiritual, until psychology, psychoanalytic oriented psychologies become really involved in the spiritual process of transformation, they are going to be dealing with the content of the psyche. Therefore, they are dealing with their own unconsciousness. The content of the psyche is relative unconsciousness. A conscious mind is free, relatively free, of content. It's what the Buddhists call suchness, or the meditative oneness. But the thing that the psychoanalytically oriented modes need to see is the relative limitation of the psychological structure itself, of the mind as conscious and unconscious. For instance, the model of the unconscious has never helped the treatment of a schizophrenic. Never. 
The reason being that the schizophrenic's consciousness already transcends the model of a conscious and unconscious dynamic. The only thing that psychiatry was therefore able to do was suppress the energy of the schizophrenic. Bring the schizophrenic down into such a suppressed state that they were operating within an egoic structure. Then the psychoanalytic terms could work. Psychoanalytic terms of consciousness and unconsciousness only operate working with the ego, but there's a dimension beyond it. How can you ever get to wholeness? You know, you can never get to wholeness by gradual approximations. And I remember when I was in fourth grade, the teacher said, if the, if the grasshopper jumps halfway each time it jumps, how many jumps will it take to get to the goal? Okay. It never gets there, right? And likewise, if we're going to try to approach consciousness in approximations, we never get there, ever. Within the subject-object manifold, there are infinite maneuvers of consciousness, infinite interpretations. But to approach the wholeness, there's only one way. Wholeness, illumination, realization, whatever, which is then conscious. And all that was previously unconscious is part of the field of consciousness. That's what I feel is the next evolutionary stage. A consciousness far, far at a higher energy, a much more universal level. Richard Moss stresses that we cannot choose this consciousness. We can only surrender to it. Ira Progoff still works within the model of the unconscious, which Richard Moss rejects. And yet it seems to me that they agree on the important point that analytical thinking can never take us to wholeness. For Dr. Progoff, our challenge is not the invention of new worldviews. It is learning to submit to existence in a spirit of openness and trust. Let's say that, that the situation of, of human history, of mankind in, in uh, this period, is like a human being's life. When a human being is in a time that is difficult, when old things are breaking up, if they panic because things are terrible and they say, what can I believe? And somebody gives them this or that doctrine and they rush and they believe it. Oh, I feel better now that I can say yes to that. But it happens that it makes them feel better, only one disadvantage, namely it's not true. So in a little while, they get the disadvantages of the fact that it's not true. And because they rushed to believe in something that made them feel good, they were pulled off the deep inner struggle and pain that might, might only, have led to some new creative awareness. It seems to me the importance of faith is to have faith in the midst of darkness. You can certainly mark off as a stage in creativity the time of not knowing of not knowing what's going to come about. But you're committed, so you keep on working, even though you don't know at all, and you're very anxious, because you don't think, you don't know what will come about. And in the course of it, you stir up the depths of yourself. That's a hypothesis that where Jung's really a value, I think. And you stir up the depths, but you get it in Zen also. Now, the time of failure can be suffering in many degrees. It's important to be affirmative about suffering. You can, there's no point in suffering on purpose, 
but it's important to be affirmative about suffering and to be able to put the suffering in the context of the life as a whole. Then, I mean, without just affirmative thought, but to put it in the context of all the cycles of our life experience for a person, and as I say, if we take a person's life as a parallel to history's life, then this time in society is a time of not knowing. It's like the time of anxiety before a creative event. The problem is that the time in the time before a creative event, you have no way of being sure that a creative event will follow or how soon it will follow. And the same is true of history. The faith or the belief and the commitment is that continuing in the process will eventually lead to something of value. Ideas tonight, you've been listening to History and the Unconscious, the third program in the series History and the New Age, written and presented by David Cayley. Tonight's program was produced by Damiano Pietropaolo, with assistance from Alison Moss, and technical operations by Colleen Veach. A list of books and articles on the themes covered in this series is available. For your free copy, write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. And printed transcripts of the four programs in this series will also be available for $5. Send your requests to The New Age, CBC Enterprises, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Please don't send cash in the mail but please don't forget to include a check or money order for $5 payable to CBC Enterprises and be prepared to wait about six weeks for delivery after the end of the series. Join us again next week at the same time for the concluding program in this series, Towards a Planetary Culture. The executive producer of Ideas is Robert Prowse and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.